Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with Daniel Lewis about his new book, Direct Democracy and Minority Rights, A Critical Assessment of the Tyranny of the Majority in the American States, published in 2013 by Routledge. Dan Lewis, how are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me, Heath. Yeah, it's a a pleasure. We're right at the start of the year, and uh, a, a great book to start the year reading. Before we get to it, Maybe you could tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Uh, sure. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Siena College. Um, it's actually my first semester here. Before I came here, I was at the University of New Orleans uh, in the political science department. Um, my research, I guess, broadly looks at um, state political institutions uh, and how they affect public policy. So to that end, I've looked a lot at direct democracy institutions, uh, minority rights, um, the particular interest in LGBT politics, uh, as well as interest groups. Great, uh, fantastic, and, and we have talked separately about some of those those, inter- those interests of yours. Um, let's talk about this book. Um, y- your book, is, as the title suggests, is about direct democracy, and without exposing uh, too many of my own deficiency, I was surprised by just how new these state provisions are. Um, I'm not sure quite why, but I wonder if you could just talk us through some of the mechanics of how where de- direct democracy comes from, and and how it works in all its different forms in some of the different states. Sure, um, most states that have direct democracy institutions uh, adopted them actually during the Progressive Era, so the early 20th century, late 19th century, um, as a way to sort of circumvent what was seen as the corrupting influences of interest groups and corporations. Um, some of the same concerns that we talk a lot about today. In contemporary politics. Um, so the, the, I guess, most common uh, institution or the institution that we would pay most attention to would be the ballot initiative, which we'd see used often in California or Oregon or Colorado, um, which allows citizens to create a policy proposal. Um, they can then uh, pass around a petition to get enough signatures to put it on a ballot and then directly vote on whether to pass it or not. Um, And I think the important feature of this uh, citizen legislative process is that um, elected officials don't play any role in it um, at all. It's entirely in the hands of citizens um, and and the groups that they form to pursue these policies. Um, But there are other forms uh, of direct democracy we're paying attention to. So um, there's what's called an indirect initiative, where uh, it's a very similar process. The citizens make a proposal, they collect signatures, um, but the proposal is put forward to the legislature first. And if the legislature can act on it, um, then that policy goes forward. If not, the legislature can choose to allow it to go to the ballot, and then the citizens would vote on it. Um, And so several states also have this option. And then the final option, which we would consider sort of a direct democracy institution in terms of policy making, would be a popular referendum which is also known as a popular veto. Uh, so if a, the legislature passes a policy, uh, citizens can collect signatures to have that policy then referred to the ballot. 
Um, so generally, this is used when the legislature passes a policy that citizens may not want to pass. So, for example, Maine passed same-sex marriage marriages several times um, with the citizens vetoing that a law um, before it was ultimately accepted by the people recently. Yeah, and you summarize much of the existing literature on the relationship between direct democracy and minority rights as agnostic. Um, what do you mean by this? Um, what's, what's come before your research that leads other scholars to take this middle-of-the-ground perspective on, on maybe some of the harm that direct democracy might do to minority rights? Yeah, well, I think there's a, uh, I think a strong theoretical sort of concern about minority rights. So direct democracy really pushes the democratic system towards a majoritarian system, essentially um, allowing public policy to be more reflective of the opinion of the majority of the people, which in a lot of cases we want democratic systems to do. Um, but I think it's pretty obvious why this might be a concern for the rights of minority groups on particular sets of issues. Um, and so just in terms of what is on the ballot, the people were concerned about this restricting minority rights. Um, so theoretically, there is this concern. Um, but empirically, when people looked around at the different laws in the states and made comparisons, usually on a sort of anecdotal basis, they didn't see much difference in the types of laws. Right. Um, we, can, we can find all sorts of state laws, particularly maybe in the southern states, for example, that restrict minority rights in the past. Um, but these states don't have direct democracy. Um, so the sort of, um, yeah, the sort of agnostic feeling about this is, well, there's this potential that could be there, um, but empirically we don't see it, right? Uh, or at least until sort of some of my studies and uh, studies like uh, done by Donald Leiter, Markell, and others um, haven't really dug into it much beyond sort of a case study anecdotal type approach. Right. You make uh, a very different argument um, uh, built around some of these um, uh, potential omissions in the literature, and that is that there is both a direct effect of direct democracy, but also an indirect effect. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about how these two different um, uh, effects might work in theory before we get up to your, your own empirical uh, analysis. So what about this direct and indirect effect of direct democracy? Sure. Um, yeah, the direct effect, I think, is the one that is pretty obvious that, you know, if people have the ability to create policy on their own, that policy itself might um, be dangerous for minority rights. Um, the indirect effect is one that wasn't really fully fleshed out until um, work by Elizabeth Gerber, um, which sort of builds on what's called an agenda setting model. Essentially, um, if representatives who would be ultimately making a lot of the policy in a state uh, know that citizens have the ability to craft policy on their own, um, this sort of threat of citizen legislation can affect legislators' behavior, um, with the end result essentially being that legislators may have incentives to pass policies they other would, otherwise wouldn't have passed. Um, so this can make them more, more responsive to public opinion. Um, and so this indirect effect can work in a couple of ways. Uh, one, it can be a signaling device. So legislators may not really know what the public wants on any particular issue, um, but if there is a ballot initiative um, proposal going forward, they may say, oh, that's a popular uh, policy. I'll go ahead and pass it on my own and then be able to take credit for it uh, when I'm up for re-election. Right? Um, so there's signaling. Uh, there's also this more threat dynamic. 
where maybe the public prefers or the majority of the public prefers what might be an extreme policy or a policy, um, for my cases, that would infringe upon minority rights. And legislators um, may not want to pass that policy because it affects their constituents. Um, but if the public is able to pursue that policy on their own, what happens is legislators or representatives might pass a more moderate version of that policy. Um, so I, I think a good example of this was in um, 2000, there was a push to ban affirmative action policies in Florida. Um, and Jeb Bush, who was elected uh, as governor of Florida, um, on the basis of a, a sort of diverse constituency, particularly for a Republican candidate, um, really didn't want to push this policy. Um, but citizens were able to get this on, were pushing to get it on the ballot. Um, and so what he did was he, through an executive order, banned affirmative action, but then also created an um, admission system to the University of Florida systems to try to increase diversity without affirmative action policies. Right? Um, so rather than just banning it, he coupled it with a way to try to get around some of the um, problems associated with affirmative action bans. So this takes us to what you actually measure and, and analyze, and, and you set up a number of um, ways in which we could uh, test this um, proposition that the perhaps uh, the, the effect of direct democracy on um, either uh, advancing or harming minority rights is, can be found at the state level. Um, would you set up for us just maybe just one of the three event history analyses that you conduct in Chapter 2, and then a little bit about what you find? Yeah, okay, so the, the, I think the major feature of uh, the event history analyses and, and some of the later analyses I do um, is the idea of you need to account for this indirect effect. So you can't just look at the results of ballot initiatives, but you also need to look at the results of what's going on in, in the traditional legislative process. Um, and so what I can do with the event history analysis is just look at sort of what is the propensity of any individual state to pass a particular policy. Um, one that I looked at was same-sex marriage bans. Um, so I looked at um, the sort of dates at which states passed uh, these bans, starting in 1995 with Utah, which was the first one to sort of pass an explicit ban on same-sex marriage. Before that, it had just been the sort of societal norm or enforced by courts without any explicit statutes. Um, so beginning in 1995, and we tracked all the states up through uh, 2008. Um, and in the end, nearly every single state passed one of these policies, whether it's by a traditional statute, by ballot initiative, or constitutional amendment. Um, and so I simply looked to see, controlling for a host of other factors, whether states that had high-impact direct democracy institutions like California and Oregon and Colorado were more likely than both um, non-initiative states, uh, like my home state here in New York, um, or low-impact uh, direct democracy states like Wyoming or Illinois or Mississippi. Um, and evidence found that, lo and behold, that these states were much more likely to pass the, these policies in any given year. Um, so th the, the, that effect was strong, statistically significant, um, and one that I found repeatedly when I looked at other policies like official English or affirmative action bans. Right. So we much of the evidence suggests that this tyranny of the majority is uh, can be observed, uh, not in the way that uh, others had observed it in the past, but in this indirect way that you have observed it here. 
Um, are there also situations where minor- minority rights are advanced? You sort of pursue this uh, in addition to the situations where minority rights might be harmed or curbed in some way through policymaking. Right. Are there other paradoxical situations where, where the opposite has happened? Um, absolutely, yeah, and, and this was one, I think, the shortcomings of the existing literature is there was an emphasis on what are called right, these anti-minority policies or initiatives and examining how um, they're passed or not passed and things like that. Um, but really, the, the whole argument of the tyranny of the majority is a sort of special argument about responsiveness to public opinion. Right. And if we want to sort of get um, you know, a more holistic view of how minority rights are affected by ballot initiatives, uh, we also need to pay attention to the sort of positive policies, the ones that would protect rights or expand rights. Um, so, yeah, I, I did a similar sort of event history analysis of several um, pro-minority policies like non-discrimination clauses, hate crimes laws, racial profiling bans, and things like that. Um, and I found um, the evidence was a bit more mixed, but there was either no effect of having direct democracy uh, on the, the adoption of these policies, or there was a positive effect. That is, um, in cases like racial profiling, for example, direct democracy actually increased the likelihood of passing these policies. Um, and this suggests that when you have um, policies that are favored, that are popular, um, Direct democracy, again, sort of enhances responsiveness, and so these policies are more likely to pass. So if uh, minority rights are popular at the time, direct democracy can be very helpful, right? The, the challenge is when a minority, um, minority's rights are not respected by the majority or they have incentives to restrict that. Um, and in this, I see sort of same-sex marriage as a policy is a great sort of example of how direct democracy has shaped this, that early on you see public opinion very strongly against same-sex marriage and gay rights in general. Um, but in recent years, and there's sort of has been a dramatic shift in public attitudes towards same-sex marriage, um, and we're up to 17 states that now allow same-sex marriage going the other way. Um, and direct democracy can play a large role both in sort of restricting that right but then expanding it back out um, if the majority is in favor of those policies. There's also another set of implications for what what advocates might might do with the the evidence you pr- present. So, um, what are the implications of these findings for those advocating for and and against minority rights? If you were to have read the existing literature and you were a, a, a policy a practitioner, uh, you might have had one strategy in mind, but your findings suggest some maybe some different strategies that you could take away. So. What are we to make from this? Uh, what, what are the implications? Well, there's a couple. I mean, in terms of if, if you're trying to pursue a particular policy um, that might restrict minority rights, so if, if you're pursuing affirmative action ban, um, certainly going directly to the people in states that allow direct democracy is a very successful uh, approach, and we've seen that. Um, through those groups um, in Florida, in Michigan, in California, uh, really in any state where it's been introduced to the public, it passes um, and overwhelmingly passes. Um, so it is a, a successful strategy, again, if opinion is on your side. Um, for minority groups who might be looking to defend themselves or maybe expand their rights, uh, I think the implication is rather than 
working exclusively with um, legislators or representatives, they need to take the case directly to the people, right, and um, present their issues in a way um, that really emphasizes civil rights. So, again, the same-sex marriage example is one where it was initially posed as a sort of morality policy, right, and people's sort of values and religious identifications really shaped how they viewed the issue. Um, in the last few years, we've seen evidence more that people are viewing the issue as one of a civil rights issue, one of equality, uh, and that has really swayed public opinion. Right? So even in the face of direct democracy, minority, minority groups can um, be proactive in protecting their rights, um, but it needs to be directed more at the people rather than just the legislators. Um, and I, I think the, the other important implication of the research is thinking about um, reformers who want to introduce direct democracy institutions to other states um, or in other countries even, that uh, I think the research shows a lot of promise for policy responsiveness, but also the pitfall um, that comes along with that in terms of uh, tyranny of the majority. Um, and reformers need to think carefully about how they can construct uh, direct democracy institutions by sort of balancing increased responsiveness but also protecting minority rights, uh, a tension that, you know, goes back at least to the founding fathers of the Constitution. Um, but there are some examples. For example, the, the indirect initiative allows maybe uh, the legislatures to take a crack at some of these issues, which might moderate policy a bit. Um, Switzerland is a good example of a direct democracy uh, country that uses this approach where the, the legislatures really are given um, several years to digest, debate a particular proposal, um, and if they act on it, their proposal is submitted alongside uh, the citizens' proposal. And, and what we've seen is that in Switzerland, when the legislature chooses to act on these initiatives, um, their proposal is accepted by the people more often than the people's own proposal. Right, that, so the legislators have a moderating role to play in the initiative process, but still allows the citizens to shape the agenda of what's going on. And that's important for democratic responsiveness. Yeah, this is a really interesting book. Um, your presentation of the uh, statistical findings, I think, is, um, is, is both relevant to the literature, but also um, very readable. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the book a lot. What's, what's next from you? Uh, is there another book project uh, that we will be able to look forward to in the future? Uh, well, I'm, I'm still sort of expanding on this idea of looking at how direct democracy shapes policy responsiveness more broadly. Uh, I am working on a book project um, with uh, William Jacoby and Sandra Schneider um, using their policy priorities measure uh, in the states um, and, and looking how public opinion affects uh, state policy priorities, but also interest groups, um, as well as direct democracy. Um, and, and so we've been working on a, a several projects that really do find sort of broad evidence of policy responsiveness in, in ways that people hadn't imagined. Um, you know, typically the literature saw policy responsiveness as being increased only in cases of very salient, um, easy issues like abortion. Um, but we're finding it across the board on economic issues, on budget issues. Um, so we're sort of expanding the ways in which we're finding out about how institutions, direct democracy institutions in particular, shape policy. Um, so, so that's one strand of research that, that I'm working on. 
Yeah, it, it uh, uh, sounds great. And until we have that to read, uh, we have your latest, uh, Direct Democracy and Minority Rights, A Critical Assessment of the Tyranny of the Majority in the American States, published and available uh, through Routledge. Uh, Dan Lewis, thank you very much for your time today. Happy to be here.